Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Not great, Bob. Hello, this is Josh Oakley. And this is Ian Corey. This is 21st Century Boys. And we are your friends. We, we just sat down and watched Okja, the new movie by Bong Joon-ho. It's a Netflix exclusive. So do you want to go in and just kind of describe the movie and then we can jump into some like first reactions and sort of yeah. stream of consciousness thoughts on it? Um, yeah, so the, the basic premise of the film is that uh, this corporation has built these super pigs and given them out to these farmers to raise and then eventually be brought back for slaughter. That's known, right, throughout the the film yeah, it's, it's people the, know that the, mm-hmm. besides the person who doesn't know that is this little girl who has grown up she would be 14 I guess by the math of uh, the film um, and she's going most of her life with this animal that she's named Okja and now we've reached the 10 years where the animals are to be brought back for said slaughter and so the film opens first with this press conference that shows how sharply the uh, satire is going to be drawn yes. um, it is a very blunt film, which I don't... Uh, some people, I feel like, take that word as an inherent criticism. I don't think it is. But it is exceedingly blunt, and it gets to that right at the beginning. And then we jump to uh, seeing this girl with the her super pig with Ocha, and kind of see their relationship go, and then from there it becomes this really wild, really plotty, really dense uh, journey up to this event that's supposed to celebrate the best pig of the bunch that is Ocha. And then kind of goes off from there. Um, obviously, don't want to get too spoiler about exactly where it goes. But suffice it to say, the corporation does not have the best intention of this pig in mind. Um, and so it basically becomes a battle between Miha and uh, this group that somewhat aligns themselves with her. And we can kind of talk about that relationship because I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, this this uh, eco-terrorist group. The uh, Animal Liberation Front, which I believe are actually a real group. Oh, really? Well. Yeah. Okay. And so it basically becomes a battle between them and this corporation and who, which is led by Tilda Swinton, um, who was also in his last film in a very similar role, and Snowpiercer, the BSU uh, right. speech. And this one isn't, I don't think, inst- as instantly iconic as that, but uh, it's it's shows off just how good she is at playing that level of cartoonish. Because really, there's two really cartoonish performances in this film. There's her, and then another character uh, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Dr. Johnny is the yeah. character, sort of a, like... Animal Planet, uh, yeah. reality TV star, sort of like the worst possible version of Steve Irwin. <laughs> right. You know? And so both of those two are pitching their performances at the highest level possible. Um, but I feel that, and part of this is just the ne- by necessity of the film, Tilda Swinton finds some more grounding in it than he does. Mm-hmm. He's kind of just being there to be cartoonish and to be part of this plot, these plot mechanisms. I mean, he also says it himself, his character, he's like, you know, it's, it's exhausting being a TV personality because yeah. you're always on. Yeah. And that's a very much a part of his character is he never stops performing and it's always anxiety and it's always like this high-pitched screech that's coming yeah. out of his mouth. Um, it's exhausting to watch, too. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of this film is about performance. It's about the performance of the corporation, what they're trying to sell to the public, mm-hmm. um, how much that matters really in the end. And I think this film is a very cynical view uh, about both what the, per- the corporation does and how the uh, population, how, how people ultimately take that in and whether they really care about yeah. uh, how bad PR looks. 
um, or how easy they are to, at washing that away. Um, and the performance of, of him specifically, the performance of even the performance of the terrorist group itself and the image they're trying to present. And I think that's because so much of this film is blunt. Um, that's one of the things that I think is more under the surface and something that because we literally did just watch it, I'll have to spend more time thinking of. But but that idea of all of these people are playing parts and they're very knowingly playing those parts, except for this girl. Right. She's the only one who has this very pure intention. It is something that drives her emotionally and she, she has no ulterior motive beyond that. And so that balance, I think, is interesting and, for me, makes the film work best when it's about her and, and you're seeing things from her eyes. Right. I mean, it's essentially a very kind of standard hero's journey kind of thing. You know, it starts... Like, her story starts in this idyllic forest with her grandfather and this massive, adorable pig, uh, the title character, Okja. And, you know, Okja gets taken away. She travels the world to get her back. Um, and then... Ultimately, there is a sort of like return. There is a a, uh, a resolution that it mirrors a sort of like you know you you come back to the place that you started, but your experiences that you've had across the journey completely change you. Uh, so it's a very standard kind of story in that way. But the lengths that it goes to um, you know illustrate that change are, are probably a lot more dramatic than I think most American films with yeah. a similar premise would do. Uh, like you could see sort of like a you know. It's it's kind of like a, a boy and his dog type movie, oh, sure. except it also deals with like you know GMOs and right. well, you know, I mean, like meatpacking. Like <laughs> it, it, it's like ET if the government had shot down the spaceship at the very end. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's just like an incredibly cynical take on that kind of standard '80s. I've seen a lot of comparisons to Spielberg that mm-hmm. basic kind of story, but then this like heaping layer of that satire, that really biting flavor that takes away a lot of those things um, or it doesn't take away but kind of morphs them yeah. because you get some of those same emotional beats but they're completely distorted from what you would expect in that style it's a really interesting combination of those two tones yeah I mean that's gonna, one of the things that we're going to be talking about a lot in this episode is um, the use of horror as a, a flavor as a spice in, in the rest of life rather than as the main meal and I think that kind of applies here too even though it doesn't it's not a horror film stylistically but you know it you know, it goes full cattle decapitation at one point. It go, it shows you the the you know the meat farms, the, yeah. the the brutality of that industry, and it also just shows you the brutality of the of corporate culture as a whole. I think this film uh, sort of opens up my perspective on uh, Bong Joon Ho's work to some degree. Like he's always had that sort of like biting, sarcastic tone. I think in pretty much all of his movies, there's a, there's a level of like dramatic irony in something like a dead dogs don't bark or mother and then since then he's kind of taken that view and and made it global like we were talking earlier about how this is maybe the most direct of any of his movies snowpiercer of course has a similar kind of like very obvious working metaphor about like class structure and the way that the ruling class uses the the bodies of the working class to keep the gears of society running and that's a pretty obvious metaphor, and it, that movie works better the more you allow it to be a metaphor, because obviously the train doesn't make any fucking sense right. if you really think about it. Um, and The Host, which it, I'd say is a very similar movie to this in that it's you know, a creature movie, it's uh, got some sort of family dynamics right. to it as well, but it's also an incredibly cynical view about corporations attempting on the face of them to do something good that are ultimately doing something really terrible. Yeah, like, and, I, and that's a movie that at least... Uh, for me, because of the, the tone that it presents throughout the film, because it presents itself 
the creature as a monster at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, it sets you up for that cynicism a little better than this. This one feels not like a twist. You get, like I said, you get that satirical bent right at the beginning. Um, but you do have that idealism of that relationship between the girl and, and Okja that I think uh, morphs that a little bit. I also want to say, because I think Snowpiercer and this are definitely, uh, of the films I've seen of his, the two most similar, especially in their denouement. For me, the but I think this one is slightly more successful. Again, having just seen it, um, I've seen Snowpiercer multiple times, so not a great comparison in the moment. But um, both of them kind of spell out what they're saying at the end. But this one, I feel like, does a better job at showing it, whereas yeah. Snowpiercer just has, you know, it has the baby's taste best moment and then this really extended scene that is really well acted and well written and, and it's not a bad scene, uh, but it, but it kind of just drops what it's saying in your lap there right. once you get to the front of the train. And the mechanics of that movie don't really allow it to have a poetic ending in any yeah. way. It just has to end in this sort of like cataclysmic destruction because it's ultimately an action film and once you get to the front of the train, there's really nowhere else to go. Um, they, there could be no other ending. So it, it does, it's kind of a uh, terrible metaphor, railroaded into, yeah. into the way that it has to yeah. be. This one, because even though it has these you know genetically modified giant super pigs, is a much more realistic story and can end on a much more uh, gray, downer ending. In, you know, melancholy, yeah. you know. Well, and it's also not tied to a specific genre like that film was. Yeah. Because like you said, it has elements of the, the kid adventure film. Um, it has elements of that satire. And it has those action beats. It has this chase sequence uh, about halfway through, maybe a little before halfway through, that I thought was really incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, the, just the staging of it and everything. This When originally she's trying to escape with Okja in the city. And it uses space so well because it begins in these giant... Uh, streets, and you see the the um, the space that, that the giant pig is allowed to run through, and everything gets starts to get narrower and narrower as it starts to go down to the subway, and and the way that uh, Bong Joon Ho frames all of that, I think, is like so beautifully makes you feel the tension grow through his use of space and through mm-hmm. that claustrophobia, and then it ends with like a poop gag that kind of reminds you that that part of this is a kids' film, um, but then of course it's it's not a kids' like it, that's the weirdest thing to me is that element so. You have this this giant scene that ends with flying poop and a fart, but then you I mean in no way is this for children. No, like absolutely. Not. <laughs> and, I, I also think a lot of it, like the the way that it is satirizing corporate culture, is would go way over the heads of most kids too. Sure. Um, but yeah, it, that's the thing is like the, his filmmaking and I think Korean filmmaking in a whole plays with tone and genre in a really fucking weird way, where it can play the kids' beats so pitch perfectly um, and it doesn't harm the rest of the movie's intention at all because ultimately the point is there and that can carry you throughout and like that character's journey can be kiddie and fun and adventure and it can also be fucking horrifying and the through line emotionally is so clear that it doesn't ruin the integrity of the movie to have those kind of drastic shifts yeah And, and, and I think that's to go back to something I just touched on earlier that's why the film works best for me when it is about that emotional through line. Mm-hmm. There's, a, for me, a bit too much time spent in that corporate culture that I think is a little unnecessary. Sure. There's this really extended sequence, uh, the scene of Tilda Swin kind of figuring out what's the next step for the, the company. And I get the objective of it, but it feels a little unnecessary to yeah. a point. Um, and there's, so there are elements like that, that where I think the film does kind of lose its way in while juggling those tones. But I think you're right that when it attaches those shifts to what she's going through, what the child's going through, 
it feels more whole and it feels more purposeful. Yeah, I, I briefly do want to touch on the, the Tilda Swinton scenes because I actually really like um, what he's doing there, although I agree that it feels kind of a different piece than a lot of the rest of the movie. She's very... Tilda Swinton, uh, as you said earlier, is very good for uh, Bong Joon-ho's work because she's able to capture that sort of like larger-than-life, absurd performance that kind of smooths over the awkwardness of having like a Korean director directing American mm. uh, scenes, which... You know, Snowpiercer, I thought, had a lot of trouble kind of nailing the uh, that language divide. Um, but one of the best things about uh, Swinton's performance is that she actually is playing two characters. That is, I guess, a, a spoiler, but yeah. not really. You can kind of see it coming right. a mile away. Um, and it's this really brilliant way of visualizing the way that corporations function in America. Is that there's this smiley, like public face, which is the character that you're originally introduced mm -hmm. to, that's obsessed with appearance, that's obsessed with PR, that's obsessed with, you know, making people like the company. You know, constantly working on the signature, yeah. or having everything designed to look a certain way. You know, this giant PR campaign. And then there's the other sister that is just about the bottom line, just about making the business function. And they're both played by the same person, because they are the same person, ultimately. It's just the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And it, it's interesting how without giving away the precise nature of it, how in the end, um, the more seemingly cruel person, the, the person that is just about that cold, hard cash, ends up working out for the plot in a way that the other sister didn't. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that's really interesting how it, uh, kind of to what you're saying, because they're they're part of a piece, you know, it might be easier to be, I don't know, that, that dealing with them, those two sides are different things, and one side may actually be crueler in what it's concealing. Um, but it's very the, open about what it wants. Right, right. The other one is, so, uh, like, it's Lucy, and then what's the other sister's name? The one Nancy? Nancy, I yeah. think so. Lucy, all she cares about is acceptance and being wanted. Right. And that's a very difficult thing to deal with because it's a fragile, you know, uh, precarious emotional state. There's no balance. Yeah. There's no way to appeal to something like that because it's, you know, it's constantly looking for the next thing. Whereas the horrors of capitalism, even though they're terrible, you know, and Nancy can be bargained with because you just always know what right. turns. Right, exactly, you know? yeah. Um, and I think that was, like, probably the, one of the more clever things that the film did, that you kind of need some of those longer scenes that don't really fit the vibe of the rest of the movie just to nail that. Yeah. Whether or not that is a uh, the best thing about the movie, probably not. Yeah. I would agree that... Uh, the Misha Oksha relationship is much more emotionally affecting, and that's really what carries the movie. But I like that there's that other thing in there too. And what do you make of kind of the other of the three prongs, the the terrorist group? Because there's things about it that I found. So there's this one moment where uh, Paul Dano's character, he's kind of the leader of this group, and you're generally supposed to think of him as the nice part, of, the nicest, most accepting member of this group. And there's one part that very much doesn't align with that very uh -huh. purposely so but it never really comes up again to my mind and I'm curious what your reading of that was well I, I think that if we're going by the performance thing that you brought up earlier about how everyone except for Amisha is really concerned about performance um, or about image in some way the Animal Liberation Front is also really concerned about image but it's for Paul Dano it's about tradition it's about this is what the group has always been about these are our morals we can never betray them and if you do then we damage the integrity of the whole thing um, and so he's attempting to stage this um, you know very theatrical kind of unveiling of the corporation's you know horrific deeds um, 
and anything that jeopardizes the integrity of that action uh, sort of puts all of what he's doing in a, in a precarious place because they can't call someone else on their hypocrisy if they themselves are hypocritical. So the integrity of the mission is jeopardized because of you know interpersonal squabbles and. I think that that's pretty realistic yeah. of like the you know sort of revolutionary group ultimately being a bunch of you know fuck ups who don't really know what they're doing but right. really mean right I, that seems true to me yeah um, so I thought that that was a cool through line it's not as developed as the rest of it I mean I think I think it did hit that balance well because I know a complaint that you've had with things we've talked about in the past this idea of a lot of um, films that incorporate this kind of terrorist group end up saying something about both sides you know oh yeah both and, sides are just right. as bad like no and, and this and this certainly pokes fun there's like a character that won't eat anything because he doesn't want to leave a car, any kind of carbon footprint right. it pokes fun like that but I think it definitely draws like there are clearly good, like good guys and bad guys in this film yeah. um, in a way that is weirdly losing that gray area is more refreshing than a lot of that those films that try and inject a gray area but wind up having a really murky message because of it yeah the message is very clear uh, it's just it allows them to actually have an emotionally affecting ending. The movie ends nominally uh, with the main character's goal succeeding, yeah. but with the awareness that you didn't actually succeed at yeah. anything. There's a larger thing at play that you had no real power at stopping. Um, and you have to kind of, to some degree, the movie's saying like you just have to come to accept that, that you have to make what changes you can. Um, and I, yeah, I, I thought that the, the animal liberation front, they do a really good job of saying like, look, these are like, flawed weirdos but they do really mean well right and that's a much more human portrayal than like oh we're gonna make the revolutionaries look good the entire course of the movie until the very end when yeah. they suddenly become like evil yeah. you know the, the hunger games problem right. or right. you know the, there's I, I can go on this rant a million yeah, times yeah 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 but I just, I just the reason I brought it up is just because I know that is a thing yeah. for you and I think so, this movie did a really good job of, of yeah. solving that puzzle but I think you're I mean I think that the way it concludes ultimately is you know it's, I feel like it's somewhat hopeful about the individual, but cynical about... I think it's kind of cynical about... Um, or, or to a certain extent, I think it ends up being a film about image that says image doesn't really matter in the end, right? Because yeah. like, they don't end up being really concerned that it, even if news breaks of um, the, the horrors they put in the... You know, you can look up like uh, the stuff that happens in, in slaughterhouses. Yeah. People still buy meat. I, I still buy meat. I'm not, you know, uh, putting that on other people. I'm not on myself. I'm, but I'm saying... I think it, it comes out on that idea that people are so concerned about that image and does that image really matter? You know, the Animal Liberation Front's always going to be perceived as a terrorist group yep. and the corporation's always going to be able to push its product to at least some extent and um, I think that's where the real cynicism of the film comes in. It's not necessarily about her, it's not about the main character, the girl, it's about that world and, and whether, like you say, you can influence it in the end. Yeah, real quick, uh, we both really liked this movie. I think it's it's fair to say, but we all I also have some cynicism about how we were able to watch it, uh, which is something that we discussed pretty much immediately after it ended. This movie, as we said before, is exclusive to Netflix. Uh, after being, um, you know, basically subjecting us to a lot of mediocre television, Netflix has decided to start making its own uh, movies. So far, so good. Um, well, on this count, but yeah, I mean, there's been some weaker ones. Um, mm -hmm. This is, and and probably the reason you haven't heard about them as much is because they kind of just there's this uh, another satire actually, War Machine that came out a month or so ago with Brad Pitt. Oh yeah, uh, he was telling the the Stanley McChrystal the Rolling Stones story. Very bad. It's a very very bad movie. Yeah, so this is the first one that, that kind of made that splash. It premiered at Cannes, got a good reception there, and which 
is is a weird double-edged sword because on one hand you are like well if Netflix is going to keep putting out films they might as well put out good ones but also this is the kind of film that you'd much rather see I mean it, it's especially those scenes that are in her um, when she when she's living at the beginning with with Okja are just these beautiful landscape shots um, but even like something like the the big chase scene uh, that is so tense and you know to not to one be able to see it on the bigger screen and two you know like my roommate's cow was jumping around at the beginning and, and just to have those elements I see plenty of movies on my laptop and I watch plenty mm-hmm. of movies on TV but something like this that that's new and you get so excited about a new film from your one of your favorite directors that is going to be big and and an epic to that extent you want to be able to have that experience that just wasn't available here and it especially sucks because you have a company like Amazon that for all their many problems does release films in theaters right, right. Manchester by the Sea I'm Not Your Negro all those things reach the theater before you they eventually make their way to Prime and Netflix is just not willing to cede any ground on that front which is really spiriting because we have this we're gonna have a Scorsese movie from them yeah. in a couple of years and that we're gonna watch in the same way and that's just a big kind of a bummer, bummer. Yeah. yeah like basically it means that if you want to have a theater experience with their films you have to be able to own a home theater right you know which is which sucks because most people don't you yeah know? Yeah, so there's another thing that I watched uh, last night that I also really wished I could have seen on a big screen, although I'm glad that I saw it at all, which is we're going to return to the subject of Twin Peaks. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eyes and dark within. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full. I, I, I'm not going to say I've been waiting for this, because, you know, it's been, what, like a month and a half since we started watching this show? It's not like I had any built-in expectation of, like, oh, when's it going to get weird? Like, clearly this shit was weird from the start. But, wow. Yeah. Wow, guys. Like... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just I'm remember, speechless. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what well, to say. I just remember after the, the third episode, watching the third episode, the one that begins with like a half hour of non-existence, and thinking, oh, this is the craziest shit I've seen on TV. And then this episode taking that, like making that look like the most standard thing in the world. Because yeah, I, I saw someone say it made it look like, like NCIS NOLA or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we can kind of talk about some of the other stuff that's come up in the weeks in between, because there's especially one thing that I do want to talk about that's been kind of a through line in the show. Um, but as far as this most recent episode, episode eight, it, it's it's funny, because the reaction to it, because um, I, I didn't catch up with it until this morning, you didn't until last night, and so I spent a couple days seeing reactions that were just flabbergasted. Yeah. Um, when I checked Twitter that night, it was just everybody with their jaw collectively dropped over what had happened. Uh, and I agree wholeheartedly with what this episode was able to accomplish um, stylistically, what it was able to do. All, I, I think it was an incredible episode of television, but I still have a couple quibbles with the way it was received. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, which we had talked about briefly uh, a little bit ago, was the idea that, that, you know, what the fuck's going on? I think part of that is just that's how we quickly react to things. Um, when I think this episode, it's pretty clear the beats that it's taking. Um, I think the story beats in this episode are, are pretty understandable. And I don't mean that as a, as a bad thing. I, I don't mean that as a credit to this episode. Because I think Lynch is able to express himself through this abstract nature, through this expressionism, 
while still maintaining that basic core. And I think that's a really impressive thing that he's able to do. And that's why I think it does a little bit of a disservice to be like, oh, I don't know what it meant, but it looked really cool. Yeah, uh, no, that's the, I think that's actually, like, that's the real bad fandom response. Like, the sort of, there's two kinds of negative reactions, or, like, reactions that I don't really like that I've been seeing. One is, like, when people are just like, oh, this is terrible, like, when's Audrey Horn showing up? Like, fuck David Lynch, he's, like, ruins Twin Peaks. It's like, you knew what you were getting into. Yeah. Like, if you had done any research, like, yeah. you knew what you were getting into. Like, no way is 71-old David Lynch, like, pulling any punches at this point. Like, yeah. here we fucking go. But also, I, I kind of want Audrey Horn to show up. I, I, yes, I completely agree. It's just, like, when you when you watch 18 Hours of David Lynch, you're going to get this shit. Right. You know? And I, I'm just shocked by people who had seen, like, the series finale or, like, the season two finale and were like, oh, yeah, the show will be totally normal when it comes back. No. No! What were you watching? Yeah. You know? Um, but I, that's an, an understandable reaction because, like, normie's going to norm. It's just going to yeah. happen. Like, you're going to lose some folks when you, like, zoom into an atomic bomb for 20 minutes. Right. Um, but... The other reaction of like people who nominally like David Lynch and have watched his other movies and that are just like, oh, this is so fucking weird. It's nonsense. It's like yeah. he's gone like completely off the deep end. It's like, no, right? Like really clearly no. Yeah. Like, he gives you time and date. You he sets up the images that we're gonna see with like foreshadowing. Yeah, it's related to the other characters that you've seen. Like, okay, sure, we don't know what the fuck that like lighthouse steel gray castle over the ocean is right we can make some assumptions but and like we don't know like why laura palmer's image exists 50 years before she's born or whatever like that yeah but how i but i but i but i see i i think i i think those things are just kind of like i think they're interesting mysteries whether or not they're solved i don't i think i think the the thing is is that lynch presents those things in a way that you don't inherently need them to be solved and so that's confuses the notion of them not making sense. Yeah. Um, it's the difference between ambiguity and nonsense. Um, and I think what he offers is that ambiguity. And when he does something, I mean, like, zooming in, like you say, zooming 20 minutes into an atomic bomb is fucking weird, and it's like nothing else that's ever been on television. But what it's doing, I, you know, it, it, it I, to me at least, is saying this is the either the creation or the release of the evil that we have seen throughout the course of this show. Yep, um, yep. And, and that's pretty clear, but it's making you feel that horror. That's why it's 20 minutes long. That's why there's this fucking incredible shot of this gas station as the smoke pours out and these creatures start to mill about. It's because it's not because it wants to be confusing. It's because it wants to make you viscerally feel the thing that he is literally saying. Yes. And 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 fucking preach <laughs> right now. Oh my and god. So I, and so it frustrates me when when people do, and even when people like it, people say I loved it, but I, but I don't understand it at all because I don't think it's that complicated. Like I say, there are mysteries. There's mystery of the the frog bug thing that crawls into the girl's mouth at the end. You know, is that Laura Palmer's mom? Is that is this Bob going to be born? Whatever. But those are ideas that one can be explored later, or two are meant to be left ambiguous for a reason. And when we get to the end of the ep- eighteen episodes, we can go, oh, that element was left ambiguous. Why? Mm-hmm. And and at this point, I think he's not given the because maybe just because it's so weird and so jarring, it's not given the ability to. It's also be, also be a TV show, and it is not supposed to be solved or or concluded after eight episodes. We're less than halfway through the season, yep. or about halfway through the season. But uh, you know, and and so I think it's it's frustrating. I mean, I get it. If this is just not your jam, it's not your jam, and that's cool. But you know, to not allow it to um, 
grow and not allow it to build mysteries and then uh, explore them. Because I think, you know, I, I that that's the thing that really frustrates me. Another thing that frustrates me to a lesser extent, but um, that I think is a, a little slightly unfair in the way that it's talked about, like on Twitter, is how much people say, this is the most lynching thing I've ever seen, which it is. But I've seen memes and stuff say, like, one was... Um, uh, like Mark Frost, oh, I'm going out of town for the weekend. Don't direct anything while I'm gone. And then Lynch is like, oh, sure. But my problem with that is that this episode is so Mark Frost as well. Yeah. It is about, he's the one who cares about the mythology way more, or at least as much as Lynch does. He wrote an entire fucking book about, solely about that mythology and that growing evil that came out last year. And I've heard it's not a very good book, but he, you know, I, maybe it's just me as a writer and someone who, if I ever collab, will always be the co-writer and never the director. You know, think getting kind of frustrated about that, but completely, this is this is a Lynch uh, film and or a Lynch episode, and and it's so much through his eye. But it is also the things that Mark Frost is really invested in in exploring the origins of that evil and what it means mm-hmm. and and how it infects small towns. That is a thing that he is hugely uh, a part of too. And so I just think it's important to give him that. Give him that credit for right. whatever elements of those that he brought in. Yeah, I would say, honestly, the most Lynchian part of the episode, uh, if we're going to, like, go there, is either the the segment inside what I'm assuming is the White Lodge. Um, I could be very wrong. Right. I've been very wrong so far every time I've predicted anything on this show. Yeah. But, um, you know, the sequence with the giant uh, where... Well, the giant, because the did you question, see? Question, yeah, question mark, question mark. Um, we can't even say character names now yeah. because they, don't, they might not apply. <laughs> um, that sequence, I felt like it, people have been comparing it a lot to Eraserhead. It's it's very Lynchian in the pace of it, mm-hmm. um, but it does have like, you know, it has the the ten question marks watching the birth of Bob from right. the atomic bomb, and then in response, creating Laura Palmer, yeah. some sort of uh, karmic balance against it, which is totally like the cosmology of of. Twin Peaks and right. not just the you know crazy wacky Lynch shit yeah. I'd say the most Lynchian was actually the opening sequence with you know uh, when Evil Cooper gets shot and then the the woodsmen or whatever we're calling yeah. them arrive and that shit was so that, fucking that, scary and that that had my favorite sound design I mean obviously that's sound design is the main thing people talk about with Lynch stuff especially this series but that sound design of because it goes so minimal, yeah. like so much of this film, or so much of this, ep- I keep saying film, so much of this episode. It's a very telling mistake. Yeah, that it is. Making, and that's why um, I wanted to see it on a big screen, yeah. you know? Um, but so much, so much, uh, is there's so much bombast, especially in the in the sound here in this episode. He uses minimal sound a lot. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, I uh, uses that, I can't remember, but it's a, the score, um, the, the one of the big musical pieces he uses is about Hiroshima. Yeah, uh, Threnody uh, for the Victims of Hiroshima, yeah. and so by Zanakis. He uses that, and uh, I'm assuming. I've never heard the original that he's the one who distorts it, right? It doesn't... Or is it pre-distorted? It's kind of like that. Okay, cool. Um, it's it's a really interesting piece. It's done almost entirely by improvisation for a classical piece. Like, the notation of it is basically, instead of saying notes, it'll be like, play on this part of the violin at this speed. Okay. And then it'll be like, try and just create this kind of scraping sound. And it does that with, like, tons and tons and tons of violins, so they're all different, and it's just this mess of dissonance. It was also in 2001 A Space Odyssey, oh. which is actually really funny because that scene is a lot like 2001 right. A Space Odyssey. Rarely do you see Lynch so clearly ape another director. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I, I think that is really interesting, and that's interesting about the piece. I didn't really know much about it. Um, but there's still, so there's bombast in, in that. Mm-hmm. But then just that, because all it is is before you get, you eventually get kind of the howling, but even that's muffled. 
but it's just that like record scr- it's it's so slight and it's yeah. so small and that makes it so much more fucking horrifying I also love uh, a thing that we've seen a couple times in this series so far characters recognizing the woodsman and then not being affected as if they like saw it and then instantly forgot it because like when you see the guy driving later he does say something like oh this might be what we've been looking for the whole time but he doesn't he isn't shaken like he is at the end of that scene and you yeah. saw the same thing with the uh, woman from the uh, CIA or FBI. In, I think FBI in the when she's in the coroner's office. So that's just the military. That's from the Pentagon. Oh, she's from the Pentagon. Okay. Yeah. With, oh, right, because that's the brakes connecting. Right, right. Um, so that but when she looks behind, so you rec- she recognizes that there is something walking there, but then it has no effect on her otherwise. Yeah. And I think that kind of stuff is what, what when because that's kind of I don't know I I can't even know how to explain why that stuff hits me so much, but. I, I think that's one of Lynch's most like powerful tools is that this thing exists. It literally exists, but it doesn't. Yeah. And that that weird shift between the two things just so fucking unnerving and, and so cool. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot to dig into symbolically in this episode. Um, I think it's very fucking telling that his origin of evil story ultimately involves the atomic bomb. Yes, it's it's really funny that it's like okay, we're gonna have this show that's like all about like like fifties nostalgia and how like underneath that is something dark and fucked up, and then to just literally go to the fifties and show like this is the thing that is dark and fucked up. Yeah, like it, it's so like almost like ham-fisted in a way yeah. when you actually are just looking at it on like on text well, right. you know and that's what I mean about like it not being that obscure, that being hard to figure out is I do I think it's like almost blunt about what yeah. it's saying and I also think it's really interesting kind of the thing I wanted to say about episodes preceding it is so maybe it was just I happened to notice it more in this episode than others or um, maybe it was used more but I feel like in episode 7 in the episode previous there was a lot more iPhone I felt yeah. like a lot of characters talked on iPhones and technology has really been a thing that has been pushed through this season, I felt like. We talked about it a little with Lucy yep. when she gets scared about the cell phone. There's the Skype scene in episode The seven. Skype. The yeah. Skype's a big one. And and how they... Because you could just Skype, they, but they say, do you know how to Skype? What's your user? Like, yeah. they, they make a point of he, they're using Skype. Um, and there's the iPhones and everything. And so I don't know if it's as easy. And I, this is another thing that I think we'll really be able to dig into once the season's done. But if it's as easy as saying technology is evil and here's an example of the atomic bomb and it kind of comes through today i don't know if that's that easy because like skype's used that skype scene is really cute it's like a really beautiful scene um so i don't don't think it's as simple as that but i think that's an an interesting will be an interesting thing to think about throughout is what is he saying about the technology that he's so clearly putting at the forefront of the show because he could have people talk on landlines like he could make that choice he's making the choice to have everybody talk on iphones and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see that followed through and see whether or not that does tie to the atomic bomb and, and what his... Because you've talked about his views on technology before and stuff. And so we, I know he doesn't like cell phones, but whether or not he's tying that to the atomic bomb, you know, is another question that sure. I think will be explored throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, so brief... Let's do some quick hits on the rest of the show just to, you know, sort of wrap up our other thoughts because we've got a solid chunk of it now. Uh, I want to talk briefly about the dude from Get Out that showed up. Uh, Mr. Scraggly, facial hair, and I don't remember the actor's name. Remember, it's the Amanda Seyfried scene where the two of them do coke. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I love that sequence because it's a lot of what I think that Lynch is getting at here is how things change but nothing changes. Yes. You know, it's just the same generational mistakes happening over and over and over again. Like Norma and Shelley being like, we both went through the same thing with these, like, terrible asshole criminal boyfriends. 
and now we're watching the same thing happen to a younger version of us you know um also um, just that's like the perfect like modern version of you know all of the shitheads from the original twin peaks is like this like scuzzy weedy dude who's got like this you know super souped up car and is like you know doing coke in it and like trying to like being like affectionate in like the most nasty way and borrowing money it's like yeah that guy would still live in yeah like what's gonna stop these assholes from constantly being around that's i i love that about yeah um yeah uh another thing that i i think we i can't remember how much we would have talked about this the the last time but i don't know if what obviously have zero idea what's going to end up happening with dougie cooper yeah but we should talk about dougie I love Dougie so much mm-hmm. from the bottom of my heart, and that's another thing that people are very divided on, because um, a lot of people just want Cooper back, and uh, I, maybe some people are just getting sick, sick of it, but I, mean, I just think it's some of the best physical comedy that's been on TV in years. Yeah. I think it's truly hysterical, um, and, 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 and then it finds a mournful tone at times that I think is really impressive. There's um, a scene a few episodes ago now at this point where he sees the son in the car, or Dougie's son in the car, and it starts crying. And you don't really know what's going on there, but I don't know, the, the things that they're able to do with Dougie I think are really impressive. I figure at some point we'll get regular Dale Cooper back, but genuinely don't know. Genuinely in episode 18, it could still be Dougie Cooper, yeah. for all I know. Because um, I, I, like, even at the beginning of this episode, my assumption was when it looked like Evil Cooper was dead, was, oh, this will be the thing that brings back. That's why everyone was hyping this episode, because now Agent Cooper's back. And obviously, I couldn't have been more wrong. Didn't look <laughs> that, that, no. that is not at all what happened in that episode. I still think Dougie Jones is going to be the key to bringing Cooper back because yeah. you see him remembering so much of of Cooper's yeah. life. I think it will happen. But, um, but I I am just kind of enjoying the like as just a standalone David yeah. Lynch story. It's so great the yeah. idea that there's this you know person just suddenly dropped into adulthood who has no real tangible skills or understanding of the world that just has, sort of has to bumble his way through life like vaguely catching glimpses of, of things that maybe make sense to him and it is it's really sad it's really touching the fact that it's Kyle McLaughlin and that it, we sort of know that it's Cooper makes you really care about him right. uh, I, I'm I was skeptical of the Dougie Jones stuff early on but now I'm, I'm all in yeah um, do you have anything to say about Nine Inch Nails a plus, love it. <laughs> I I um I love old like cool dad Trent Reznor. Um, he's he's done such an incredible job of maintaining different types of cool over the course of his career, from being like sort of the young hot goth to like being the strung out like mysterious weirdo coming back and being like ripped as hell and yeah. just being like macho and now just being like yeah I'm a cool dad I wear you know sunglasses inside. <laughs> Well, I also think it was really cool the way that it used that segment where it's placed almost like a theme song, mm-hmm. where a theme song would be, having the opening, and then from there you go jump back to the 1940s. Uh, it's, re- it's really cool, I think, in retrospect now, because I think the first four episodes are the ones that all end with musical performances. First one doesn't, and then it's four in a row. Okay. And then they sort of, they've been breaking it up here. Yeah, but I think the breaking it up is interesting, because then you have something like, um, you know, you've had an episode end with uh, Dougie at the Statue, you had the episode end with the really kind of unnerving scene where the guy runs into the diner and asks, like, have you seen Billy? And then that's it. Yeah. And you don't have any, like, any, like you know, yeah. any context for that. And then you have, like, the scene at the the roadhouse with the sweeping, and then you get a little bit of the 
Renault brother. Yeah, what the fuck? It's it's the same actor that played Jacques yeah, Renault, right? Yeah, yeah that's but now it's a new Renault brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so I think it's cool that he kind of set up this template for what episodes would look like, and then even within the context of this show, that's really fucking weird. He's bro- he's breaking that context and playing with it and playing mm-hmm. with the form. At this point, I'm I'm all the way in on like the musical guest. Sequences. Yeah. Once it's, once they had Sharon Van Etten, I was like, <laughs> that was it for me. Um, I also I I I'm really. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm in love with the the chromatics song. Shadow. Oh yeah, yeah, I've been listening to it. I, a bunch. I listened to it all the time. Yeah. I've never liked that band before. And maybe it was just because like I was uh, in a zone and like watching Twin Peaks and saw that, and I thought it was just like that's the perfect encapsulation of what this new season yeah. was like. You know, one last time going down into the darkness to like you know maybe try and find Laura Palmer and redemption. Like finally. Yeah. Well, know? and and for me that that's kind of the big thing um, that made me really happy about this episode. I, I mean, I, I do think it's a truly extraordinary episode of television in any context, but I really love, and I brought this up before, the way that the show is very much making a point of saying that, at least to some degree, it is still about Laura Palmer's death. Mm-hmm. And I think that that gives it something that even when it feels completely unmoored, every episode begins with the image of Laura Palmer. You know, you had the scene with Bobby crying at the portrait. You have this idea that she represents some kind of goodness in the world. There and I don't know. Maybe that'll be it. But I, I have a feeling that even if she's not a, a main point again, a main character again, that string is is you know I've never really felt lost out of it. Not lost in the season. I felt lost, but in a good way. I've never really felt out of the season. But even if I had been, I, that is a string that I think is very subtly being placed throughout. That or even like you said, like the Amanda Seyfried character basically being a representation she, to some extent she's a representation of what Shelley mistake were, but that shot of her being high and that, that um, shot from above is very Laura Palmer-esque mm-hmm. um, and so I, I really appreciate that, that beating heart and Fire Walks Me proves that that to him is so important, that, that, or that character um, I, and I love that that still matters to the extent that it does in this series uh, Another real quick hit, Diane Laura Dern. Yeah. I mean, the twin, the David Lynch all-stars-ness of, of this show is terrific. And, like, that particular casting, like, oh, fuck, of yeah, course. Perfect. You know? Um, really disturbing scene in the prison between yeah. her and Evil Cooper. I think we all know where that's going. Um, and I don't really want to talk about it until it, we do know for sure. But, like... But, yeah. Oh, and one other real quick. So, the purple sea in the thing with the tower was the same purple sea in, in what we assume was non-existence, right? I think so. Okay. Um, I, I do think that whole sequence was meant to evoke this is the same place. Right. It's the same weird bell thing. Yeah. Um, oh, that, right. That right. also goes back to my, my idea that there's iterations in there, that it's some sort of, like, cycle that repeats mm-hmm. inside of the non-existence, that's, like, different women representing maybe the same woman, and that the woman that we saw... And this episode is like oh, yeah. the first version of it, or at least the earliest that we know of. It's really hard to talk about that stuff. It is. I don't even know if we'll ever be able to do it fully because yeah. it might just be like, you know, David Lynch on his like meditations, like pulling up, okay, maybe this thing. You know, well, this I is mean, what it is. And, that, and that's what he said in an interview about like the woodsman. Mm-hmm. He said like the image of the one sitting in the jail cell in that earlier episode. He was just like, oh, that image just came to me, and so I put it in. And not, not again, not to say it doesn't have any meaning, but that. That, that that's a lot of the images themselves just come like that and then he finds a way to like tie them into yeah, something else exactly uh, yeah that sequence too fucking so haunting at the yeah. end of the episode the, I mean that's gonna be every once in a while you wonder like are we ever gonna have something in this series that's as like memorable as like the fire walk with me speech or like all of these various like iconic lynch isms the you know this is the water and this is the well 
mantra, like that's fucking legendary. That's yeah. that's like top five Lynch immediately. Yeah. You know, it, he's just he has not lost it at all, yeah. and it's so incredible. Oh, and I also forgot about the little bit of fan service uh, when he they're at Diane's house uh-huh. and he goes, "Damn, you damn your coffee." coffee. <laughs> there have been like little hints of stuff yeah. like that throughout the series that I really really like. Yeah. Um, yeah, so right. I think that kind of sums up yeah. our thoughts on Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, at least when it ends, maybe before that. Mm-hmm. If we get another episode, I guess yeah. we'll have to. So we're planning on continuing to talk about horror movies, and we actually just went and saw one, kind of. I mean, kind of a horror movie. We did go and see it. Um, So we went and saw It Comes at Night. Uh, We were both really excited about it. Um, At least I can say that I was when I saw the trailer, when you showed me the trailer. Uh, It immediately piqued my interest. It's very much my shit. Um, Leaving the theater, I would say it's kind of my shit. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I feel like our, our segments, we've grown... You know, Okja had a little bit of, of the actual human horror in mm-hmm. it. Twin Peaks had that more cerebral horror, and now we've reached something that still isn't quite, you know, it's not a monster movie, it's not anything like that, but it is, I feel like, more explicitly about that, maybe even thriller is a better word, tone. It's about that tension yeah. that you feel the whole time. Um, it's a uh, story about a post-apocalypse. Of one family comes to start living with another family, and... They do not get along for various reasons. Um, that's kind of most simply put. Um, and yeah, for me, it's a movie that really, you and I talked about it after we saw it, but kind of after that really quickly left my mind. Yeah. Uh, to me, it does a lot of things that, I, I generally like um, post-apocalyptic fiction. I, I think there's a lot of good there, and I still think there's, in the future, we can have lots of good things within it. But this just feels to hit, this seems to hit way too many familiar notes for me. Yeah. Um, Really, I, I felt like I said to you after we saw it. It feels like oh, The Walking Dead to a large extent. Yeah, the the thing that I said to you was that this feels like what I wish The Walking Dead was. Yeah. Which, yeah, sure, that's a positive mark. But this is basically that's the ceiling. Is that this is like a really good episode of The Walking Dead? Right. You know? Um. Yeah. And and there's things about it that are good. There, it does build tension very well. It is it is good at doing that. Um. But it just doesn't end up saying much to me that. Uh, that hasn't been said before. Um, and I, for what's actually funny, because to go back to Ocho, we talked about how that film is best when it's through the, the girl's eyes. Yeah. Um, and for me, this film is best when it's through it's this teenager's eyes. Yes. And when it does that, it's really fascinating because there's all this stuff that seems to be going on that it hints at. There's something with him kind of being attracted to the mom from the family that has moved in with them. And there's stuff like that that then just kind of fizzles by the end. And that was really frustrating to me because I thought the specificity of that perspective was something new. It was a new spin on this familiar situation. But then it just kind of lost it and the the climax just, uh, it goes for nihilism and I guess it achieves it, but it it just feels kind of hollow to me. I know you were a little more receptive to it. 
Um, yeah, I think that it's the only way that that story kind of can end. Sure. Um, and what I liked about the movie is like it probably its most Lynchian elements is that it makes like copious use of dream sequences. Yeah. I think it gets a bit cheap with it because ultimately the only real like horror scenes are these scenes that you know are not real. Right. Um, and then of course when it comes back to reality, the real horror is other human beings. Like, yeah. okay, cool, I've read Sark before. You know, like it's not, it's not that deep at yeah. this point. Like, and but. The one thing that I liked is that you know the the dream sequences that keep occurring are the the teenager slowly walking further and further away from the house, and then in the final sequence he leaves entirely, and that's a really poetic kind of note sure. to end on. But it doesn't really ultimately that that poem doesn't mean much. Yeah, it's a lot of beautiful words for right. not really that much depth. And it's really a shame. Uh, this director uh, put out his first feature film last year called Krisha. Uh, which I think I actually recommended on the podcast, if I remember correctly. You did. Um, and it's a really, really good film that is about this uh, woman in her 50s or 60s coming home, and she's the fuck-up of this family. She's the black sheep of this family. She's had alcohol problems, drug problems, and she's coming home for, I'm pretty sure it's Thanksgiving, or some kind of celebration altogether. And it's the thing that's most brilliant about it is that it's filmed like a horror film. Yeah. It has that tension. It has that oddness. It has those incongruencies that make you feel unnerved. But it's not. It's a drama. It's a family drama. And and by playing with those genres so well, it, um, it achieves something that feels really original. Now, here we have him kind of going more in that straight horror vein, pulling some of those same tricks, because I think that that kind of poetry with the door is really good and is something that reminded me a lot of Krisha. But the rest of it doesn't... Maybe it's just because it's too straightforward in that sense. It's him applying the genre to itself doesn't uh, achieve that same... I still think he has all the talent as a director. There are sequences yep. in this that I, I think have a lot of promise still. I think Kreish is still great. I'm excited for whatever he does next. I just hope it isn't a horror film. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that the things that are most interesting about this movie is the ways that it's not like a horror movie. Yeah. Like The sort of like happy domesticity is a really, really yeah. beautiful sequence. Um, the way that essentially the movie is just about like here's how society works. It's like, people have needs, they're afraid that other people are going to take what they need, they find some sort of common ground, and then here's where the nihilism comes in, ultimately those, the fundamental differences of people, how they can't trust each other, cause them to murder each other in increasingly brutal ways. Um, that's not really that deep. Yeah. I, I keep saying that, but like, I think that as a stylist, he clearly knows horror in and out. It's very tense and it works. Um, I feel like this it's kind of this it's part of this wave of horror movies we've been getting pretty much like one a year for a while now you know uh, earlier this year we had Get Out which I think is kind of like the big budget version of a lot of these sort of like smart horror movies yeah but even not that big a budget for well compared to the other ones you know before that we had The Witch which was like two million bucks or something right. uh, you know we had It Follows and then we also had The Babadook which I think is maybe the earliest example of the kind of thing we're talking about um, it, of this wave I think so yeah. that I can that I can remember off the top of my head yeah um, and so you know for a few re reasons The Babadook has been on my mind lately I actually just finally saw it for the first oh, time oh really really good movie yeah dude it's that movie so fucking good. rules <laughs> well, that's the other thing is all these movies are I love all of these all the movies that you meant, except for it comes at night, but mm -hmm. but all the ones preceding it in this trend, The Witch, It Follows, um, and uh, The Babadook, I, I think are all really, really incredible. Yeah, I mean, and they're, they're horror movies for people who may not necessarily love horror. Like, I know that there is sort of this division of, like, people who just really want to get their, their shit scared out of them right. don't really love these movies, even though I'd say The Babadook and The Witch are fucking terrifying movies. 
Um, the Babadook's probably the closest to a, a normal straight ahead horror film. It follows is a bit more genre pastiche and like is clearly referencing a lot of horror movies, but isn't uh, isn't really that scary at times. It's got some jumps, but it's yeah. not, you know it's going for something different. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you what do you make of the current like boom in horror? Um, or do we want to talk about the book first? Because I do want to talk. You had a very strong reaction to uh, a video that came out <laughs> oh lately. And I, I do want to talk about the the Bobadoo phenomenon that's happening. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of want to let you handle that if like if that's cool with you. Yeah. Um, well, I honestly I can't really explain it well. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, as you might have heard, especially with uh, Pride this month, um, it's come up. A, a, it's kind of hit a groundswell now, uh, or hit an apex, or whatever. The Babadook is now a gay icon, um, and it's one of those things that's as many things on the internet are half ironic, half sincere. Yeah, it apparently started as like just a Tumblr joke thread, and well, because originally the, the the source was that Netflix accidentally put the Babadook. Oh, okay, under. that was the first thing that happened. Yeah. Okay, um, but yeah, and then there was like a, a trend saying that it was. Uh, I can't remember saying that. Basically, I know it kind of started with that, then grew on Tumblr, and then became a, a much larger thing. I mean, much it's still a very niche idea, but because like the Babadook is already niche, and then uh, saying it's a gay icon is is niche within that. Um, but yeah, it has provided definitely my favorite video, my favorite online video in years, um, which is uh, the Babadook as a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race. And part of the reason I loved it so much is I watched a couple episodes. My my roommate is a huge fan of the show. There are three portraits of drag queens from the show hanging on the wall right in front of me. Um, and so uh, he has uh, he screens it here every week. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've sat in on a couple, and it's a very good show. As other people have said, it's one of the better reality competition shows. Um, but So this is just a short, it's like a minute long, of the Babadook being introduced as a contestant. And just like brilliantly uses reactions from from the drag queens in, in other episodes and whoever is doing the voice of the Duke himself is so funny um, and talks about you know where where the Duke's from and what his hobbies are and stuff and um, it's it's just it's just such a brilliant um, you know whoever hit on that idea whoever realized that this gay icon thing was coming or was was starting to build and and jumped on this was absolutely brilliant I'm glad. Um, that they were so successful in it. We'll, we'll link to it on the Tumblr page. It, it truly is one of the great YouTube videos. Um, I I love it because it's just... Uh, I've read some like interesting like intellectualized kind of takes, which is like, yeah. sure, you can do that. It's also just really funny. Yeah. Um, about how, like, you know, queer coding in movies making villains appear effeminate and, like, that's such a part of, like, horror, but also, like, you know, Disney movies growing up. Yeah. So to have, like, no, we're gonna take this, like, straight, you know, heterosexual horror movie and, like, turn the villain game just to, like, fuck with everyone involved. Yeah. It's so terrific. It's, not, really even, it's not even heterosexual. It's, like, a not, it's a paper... Well, I mean, kinda... the movie itself is, right. like, very much based in sort of, like, motherhood. Oh, sure, 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 sure. desire for her dead husband yeah. and all of that. And then, like, yeah, you know, yeah, twisted. Yeah. It's, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, it is. Um, so, yeah, I, like... We had a conversation a while back about how, why are all of these, like, really great smart horror movies happening, uh, specifically in movies, and why hasn't that translated to TV, necessarily? Um, because it seems like, I've said this to a few people already, that lately the only movies I'm really interested in going to are horror movies, because everything else seems like big-budget action films that are, like, franchise-building, and it's just, like... Or they're, you know, obviously I'm still a fucking art cinema nerd. I'm still right. going to go see, like, Ghost Story and shit like that. But, like, 
it seems like the only things that get that like really just gut level visceral reaction are standalone horror films for me these days. Uh, so I, I don't know. I wanted to kind of dive into that. I don't know if there's really anything there, but I, I feel like it would be remiss for us to not try to hash out that conversation yeah. here. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, because I, I don't know if it's having that same impact culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Get Out, I mean, I think, I, I, unless something crazy happens, then besides, you know, Star Wars, whatever, um, uh, it that Get Out's going to be the film of the year, as far as, the, like, culturally dominant, well, how much money it made, and how much people talked about it, and all of that. Um, it, it left such an impact. But the other ones were more niche, yeah. um, and they certainly did, within that niche, leave a huge impact. You know, The Witch was was widely beloved um, by a certain type of person. But I do think it's interesting because I think it, it's having an impact in those pockets. But to a, the larger culture, besides something like Get Out, uh, the the horror offerings are still stuff like Annabelle Returns or whatever. and uh-huh. um, Which does look scary as hell, I'll admit. Yeah. Those folks seem to know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, well, the, the Conjuring mo- the movies are, are good. Um, the ones that Annabelle spun off of. I've been mm-hmm. uh, seeing the Annabelle movies. But... But yeah, I, I'm curious because I don't know if it's a, a cultural thing. And even with Get Out being huge, I think it's less about the horror than it is about synthesizing kind of any immediately um, visceral genre with the, the conversation around race. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think um, maybe a comedy could have had that same effect. Or I, I think it was less about it being horror and more about what it did within the context of a... Um, What's the word? Like seemingly, just like kind of, enter- oh, this is going to be an entertaining film and then have this other thing going on and that's kind of rare these days. Because, um, you know, again, there's still plenty of incredible films that come out. Right. So ne- never am I saying that's not true, but very few of them are on that level of popularity that are doing something as as in-depth as Get Out is. Right. I, I think that one of the things we talked about briefly is like horror and comedy are, you know, always going to work in, to some degree in uh, as like hand in hand uh, and we were thinking about how like television has completely taken over comedy you know like all of the good comedies all of the really fucking smart um, you know progressive pushing the genre forward mixing the genre with other things drama like bringing drama elements in in a really interesting way all of that's happening on television yeah but horror seems to be working pretty much solely in film yeah and it's it's probably the most pure film experience that you can have anymore it's like going to the cinema and getting the shit scared out of you. Like, it, something about that still, like, unlike anything else that I, I go and see, that's retaining, like, the core value of why I like going to yeah. movies, you know? Well, I think that divide comes from the fact that comedy is bred from familiarity and horror is bred from the unknown. Mm-hmm. So horror, when you go to see a two-hour horror film, you're entering a new world, you don't know the rules of it, you slowly find out the rules and they're terrifying. Comedy, you check back in on Brooklyn Nine-Nine this week, or even something like Master of None, because to some extent you're familiar with the world and familiar with the character and want to return to it and comedy allows that relationship to build. And so that's, TV allows that relationship right. to build especially. Right. Um, and so I think that's part of the big reason. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, the, the lack of comedy in films is a whole other conversation, but there are straight, com- like, you know, because the, the Will Ferrell kind of like straightforward comedies. Those lack of good comedies. Like right, that. right. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a whole other conversation that maybe we already had at some point. I can't remember. But anyway... But yeah, I do think that's an interesting point you bring up. Um, I think horror on TV is really hard. Uh, there's some that do it, like American Horror Story. Um, but it is because it, you are trying to sustain a thing and doing that over 13 hours or whatever is much harder than doing it over two hours in a, mm-hmm. in a cinema. And even two hours, I mean, most horror films are like an hour and a half because of that that difficulty. Yeah. 
Um, so I don't know if that really fit in with any of what we're talking about, but I wanted to like give it a shot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we're going to keep coming back to this horror thing. I still haven't figured out exactly what I mean yet, but yeah. I wanted to give it a shot here because there seems to be this thing happening in culture. Maybe it's because, you know, we're living in a terrifying universe that like everything that I've been ingesting lately has some degree of horror to it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that ties the episode together or not, but hey, you know, here we are. We tried. And uh, now we're going to try some recommendations. my recommendation i've been out of town for i was out of town for like 10 days so i've been absorbed i've been watched a lot of stuff read a lot of stuff or whatever um in that time um but uh one thing i did end up catching up with last night that came out last week was an essay to continue the horror theme about get out uh, by zadie smith mm. it was published in harper's um so it's about um get out and it's also about the uh painting of um emmett till that was painted by a white woman, that that was a, a huge thing earlier this year. And so she ties together those two and some other pieces of, of art in this piece. Um, and it's really fascinating, because uh, she's biracial, that's something that she's written about a lot um, herself. And so it's really fascinating to get that perspective on it, because that's one that at least I hadn't seen before. And to talk about uh, the way she talks about who is allowed to talk about who, and the way she incorporates that into Get Out and uh, bring out the themes of that film in a way that, again, it was such a widely discussed film that I didn't really think there were other beats to find on it. Um, and she finds some some really fascinating ones. And I, I found the uh, saga of that Emmett Till painting so fascinating in and of itself. And so to see those two topics brought together um, by one of the greatest living writers um, was, was really fascinating to read. I've also got a piece of reading recommendation going back to our previous conversation about anxiety over Netflix. Anytime that we talk about uh, streaming movies, you know I'm going to talk about streaming music. Uh, so I want to recommend a piece by Jen Pelly uh, about the way that uh, Spotify is attempting to push everything towards playlists. Uh, and it's, it's a very, very interesting, in-depth, uh, lots of interviews with all of the various playlist makers, you know, your filters, digsters. Uh, it's a, a lot to take in. It's, it's very techy at times. It's very business-oriented. Um, but it's a really fascinating look at the way that where streaming services might be going in the future. That does sound really interesting. Um, I'll definitely check that out. So, um, until next time, you can find us on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on Tumblr for show notes. Uh, you can find my writing at Invisible Oranges. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ian K. Corey. You can find my writing at Cuprin Film, and you can follow me on Twitter at Wine and Pop. All right, until next time, free Michael Collins! Yeah.